Hello and welcome to Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm Matt Cantorino. Today on the podcast, we'll be speaking with Stephen Wertheim, a historian of the United States and the world. He's director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a think tank he co-founded in 2019. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy, and of numerous other articles, both academic and popular. We'll be joined by Jonathan Askinus, who is assistant professor in the Department of Politics here at the Catholic University of America. He works on the connections between the Republican tradition, technology, and national security, and he will lead off our conversation. So, Stephen, thank you for joining us today. I'm um, really looking forward to talking to you about uh, about your book, about what it says about the ongoing discussion about the liberal international order, and about the work that you're doing at the Quincy Institute. Um, so, for our listeners who haven't read your uh, excellent, and I think even award-winning book, uh, Tomorrow the World, what's your what's what's it about, and and what's your interpretation of how America became interested in global power? Thank you. It's a delight for me to be able to join you. So this is a really problem-centered, analytical, argument-driven work of history, uh, though it is very chronological uh, and and narrative-driven too. Um, The question I set out to answer was, you know, we know that the founders of the United States and statesmen for several generations, you know, had a tradition of wanting to avoid so-called entanglement of the United States and Europe in particular and uh, Europe and Asia more broadly, that they had a kind of hemispheric conception of how U.S. military power should be deployed. But we also know in our own time that the foreign policy class uh, in Washington, D.C. sees it as obvious that the United States should be the dominant military power around the world, be what Madeleine Albright called the indispensable nation when she appeared on the Today Show in 1998. So I wanted to know, I mean, some at some point between the founding and now, American officials and intellectuals must have made a decision consciously to pursue global military dominance and to elevate global military dominance to axiomatic status in American politics, to make that seem like the obvious, uncontestable basis from which the rest of American foreign policy should proceed. So I ended up, to answer that question, I ended up focusing very specifically on what I take to be an extremely pivotal point in time. The 18 months between France's fall to Nazi Germany in the middle of 1940 and the attack on Pearl Harbor that got the United States into the war. And what I try to show is there was really extensive and largely unknown thinking and planning among American elites about the post-war world, even before the United States was in the war. This was a period where people who had previously thought it was obvious that the United States, of course, would maintain its tradition of non-entanglement, that the, the, the most they could imagine at the outset of World War II was that the United States would confine its deployment of military force to the Western Hemisphere, plus its holdings in the Pacific. And they ended up in the middle of 1940, 
making a very different choice that wasn't just about America's role in the war, but about America's role in the world. And could you explain for our listeners what their motivation was and what, what, what the analysis was that made them feel that that was uh, not only a good idea, but a necessary idea? Thanks, John. That's important that you distinguish between good and necessary. So let's come back to that. But the, the first thing to say, I think, is that when Nazi Germany was able to conquer France, which surprised everybody, it surprised Germany's own generals uh, and surprised American observers and people around the world, that presented the United States with a kind of new reality. It suggested that Nazi Germany the, and the Axis Alliance, which then formed months after that, might well be capable of attaining dominance through territorial conquest of Europe and Asia. And that specter uh, had never really existed before as a proximate thing. I mean, maybe you could say, you know, Napoleon's conquest at some point, but the United States was a kind of backwater. And there's another important feature of the uh, Axis powers at that time, which was that they, they were not just a, another power. I mean, the United States had lived with British imperial hegemony for a long time, didn't like it very much, uh, but America lived with it. But the Axis powers were understood to be totalitarian. They were staking out explicitly a claim to modernity. They were proclaiming a new world order. And also the way that totalitarian governments organized their society was substantially incompatible with the, let's say, liberal world order. I don't want to impose that term in the past, but essentially that's what we're talking about. The American style terms that Americans were accustomed to enjoying as they you know, lived in a world that initially when America was founded seemed quite hostile to Republican uh, political forms, but over time seemed to be progressing more and more in a basically American style direction. All of a sudden, that trajectory of world history seemed to be reversed. But that didn't settle the question, because a lot of Americans, after France fell, believed, uh, well, this was a terrible thing, but the United States remains safe fundamentally in North America and in the Western Hemisphere. It's very implausible that another country could successfully attack the United States across the Atlantic or Pacific Oceans. And the economy of the United States remained fundamentally prosperous, especially after the Great Depression. And so gathering under the banner of America First, Americans, a diverse coalition said, OK, look, let's uh, adhere to our traditional non-entanglement position. Let's maintain dominance over the entire Western Hemisphere. I mean, if this is isolationism, uh, you should tell that to people in Central America, people in South America. People in Hawaii and uh, the Philippines, which the United States held at that time as a colony. So that was their view. But th that was a pretty well-grounded view. It wasn't, it was basically accepted that, yes, for the United States to maintain such a role in the world would suffice. Then why did another set of people make a fundamentally different choice? They faced a situation where either you could uh, adhere to non-entanglement 
or you could fulfill some other aspirations that also had deep roots in America's past, especially among the kinds of people who had been steering American foreign policy for several decades at least. They expected as internationalists, not just to keep out of power politics or try to transcend power politics, but also to be able to engage in American style, basically liberal interaction around the world. And they had been involved in projects to try to settle disputes judiciously and to, um, to bring out the harmony, some of them believed, that really did exist in the world. And suddenly they came to the conclusion, quite understandably, that in order for the basic structure of liberal American style interaction to take place in order to have a, that kind of a world order, the phrase they used at the time, it required armed force, predominant armed force to back it up because otherwise it might be totalitarian axis powers uh, who would be uh, blocking that order. And as American exceptionalists, as nationalists, they also worried that the United States would um, henceforth be on the receiving end of world history. America was supposed to be radiating its influence and its model outward, even if that didn't necessarily need to take the form of forcible intervention. So they made arguments explicitly in these terms, starting in about the fall of 1940, that now for the United States to fulfill these traditional aspirations, it needed to replace Britain, which was faltering uh, as a result of the war, as the armed power, the dominant armed power across the world. So, you know, one of the things that's really interesting when you one reads 19th century American um, foreign policy rhetoric, right, is that the British aren't the good guys, which maybe shouldn't be so surprising to us, right? There is this, this association of the, the hostility of the rest of the world to republicanism to democracy. How did the British become the good guys? How, how did we arrive at this notion of a world that was trending in our direction, of which uh, the fall of France was a kind of uh, terrible reversal? Yeah, so I mean, you could tell the story of a rapprochement between the United States and Great Britain starting in the late 19th century, uh, by the turn of the 20th century, Leaders, especially Republicans like Teddy Roosevelt, greatly admired the British Empire. Uh, there was a racial component to this, a sense that the United States shared uh, Anglo-Saxon or English-speaking uh, affinities with not just the British Isles, but also the wider um, British settler colonies, the Commonwealth. So you could tell that story, but it's not linear. and. After World War I, there was a tremendous reaction in the United States against the US having participated in that war and uh, a great deal of agitation to the effect that Britain had uh, you know, fooled the United States uh, to try to get them into the war, or there was an over-identification among uh, leaders and the Wilson administration with Great, great Britain's side in the war. Uh, so there's a real, you know, turn against uh, this, this sentiment. And, you know, so by the 1930s, it was still quite um, contested uh, exactly what kind of affinity did the United States have with Great Britain. And so in the 1930s, the neutrality acts are passed that try to 
deepen America's neutral stance in the looming war in Europe, meaning it would, you know, prevent the United States from effectively giving key material aid to one side in, in that struggle in Europe. Uh, and there was, I think, always still uh, some loopholes in those acts. They didn't quite get there in the end, and they were loosened to some degree over time as the 30s went on. Uh, so it was still very much up for grabs uh, by the beginning of World War II, uh, the extent to which uh, the United States would not sympathize with the British side. I mean, hardly anybody you know, sympathized with the Axis side or saw a basic kind of equivalence between the two, but to what extent the United States would want to get materially involved and, and throw its weight into that side was important. So even, you know, after it did become clear after the fall of France that the United States would not be neutral, uh, that instead it would uh, provide Lend-Lease aid uh, unambiguously to, to, to try to support the Allied war effort without formally entering the war. Even then, there was a really a great effort to um, to make this seem about American interests uh, and to try to avoid the impression that there was um, too close an affinity with Great Britain. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up neutrality. I mean, you know, even as your book traces the rise of primacy, there's a kind of, you know, the, the other side of that coin is the demise of neutrality, which had really been the guiding principle of American foreign policy from the beginning. So, you know, as as you well know, in in World War One, Wilson had to sort of jump through hoops to assert that he he was arriving, he was acting neutrally prior to American entrance in the war. Um, he hasn't really believed, and so there are all these efforts around uh, shoring up neutrality during the 20s and 30s, and yet the term gets gets completely dropped um, after this moment that you write about. So, how did what role was neutrality playing before uh, the rise of supremacy in and how does, how does it get dropped and why is it felt at the time that this is in fact a significant shift or is it kind of covered over? Why, why isn't the end of neutrality more remarked on in our discussions of American foreign policy? It should be more remarked upon. I mean, you've sketched out the arc of it pretty well. In World War II initially, the Wilson administration tried to adhere to a traditional conception of neutrality that goes back to George Washington, which is that, you know, Europe is going to quarrel. That's what Europe does. And America is going to trade with all belligerents and conduct business uh, in a formally impartial way. Uh, that's fine. In fact, America can profit. And at the time, William Jennings Bryan resigned from the uh, Wilson administration, the Secretary of State, because he sensed that in even though these rules were, you know, facially impartial, they would in fact involve the United States um, having much closer ties to one side in the war in Europe, to the Anglo-French side, and that would in turn create conditions where Germany might target the United States, uh, its shipping and so forth, and drag the United States into the war, and that's pretty much what happened. So in the aftermath of World War II, that traditional um, conception of neutrality it fractures, it polarizes. So by the 1930s, yes, there are a huge advocates of neutrality, but they're also coming to agree more with Brian and try to implement Brian's position now in a forward-looking way in the 1930s as the war in Europe looms. 
So they try to restrict uh, certain forms of American intercourse with belligerent countries and impose that on the executive branch, keep the United States from extending arms, loans, and so forth to the countries at war to kind of quarantine the United States and deepen its neutrality. So in a sense, that was a step away from the assertion of traditional neutral rights that detached um, American intercourse uh, from the question of war and peace. But the relationship, as I said, polarized. So on the other end, there came to be advocates uh, initially of what was called collective security, uh, who wanted in a partial neutrality, if you will. They wanted the United States, yeah, it'd be fine to um, restrict uh, intercourse with uh, the bad side in the war, the aggressors, but maintain it with the victim countries. Uh, and that was appealing, for example, when the Spanish Civil War uh, raged and even some of the advocates of impartial neutrality were concerned of, about how the impartial application of those rules ended up uh, helping the fascist side in that struggle. But a huge leap is then taken after the fall of France. I mean, the United States maintains neutrality in World War II, not in, not in sympathy, but in policy. When the war breaks out in Europe during the so-called phony war in the first uh, eight months, uh, but after the fall of France, it totally abandons any pretense of neutrality. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt announces that the United States should become the arsenal of democracy, and that takes legislative form in, in the uh, form of extending lend-lease aid uh, to Britain, and not just to Britain, but to any opponent of the Axis powers, and allows the president to uh, have discretion over uh, which powers he's going to give Lend-Lease aid to. So that was understood at the time to be a fundamental departure from any kind of neutrality. Uh, and uh, in fact, the um, international lawyers uh, at the time had to invent a new category to describe America's stance in the war. They called it non-belligerence rather than neutrality. So the demise of neutrality really tracks with the story that I'm telling uh, about how the United States assumed uh, responsibility for preserving world order by force. That really eliminated the option of, of neutrality from the uh, repertoire of uh, American diplomacy. Let me ask you about the term isolationism. Neutrality, someone might say, sounds a lot like isolationism. Wasn't that, in fact, America's foreign policy for most of its history until 1940 or so, when we bravely stepped away from it and took on our responsibilities in the world? So what are the differences between these two concepts, and where does the I word come from? So isolationism comes as a term from this exact moment, um, but we should be careful about seeing it as a neutral descriptor for any substantial portion of Americans. So I think neutrality is the best way to understand what Americans who were trying to keep out of war in the 1930s, what they were really trying to do and how they understood themselves. But their opponents began for the first time in the 1930s with any kind of regularity to brand them as quote unquote isolationists and exponents of 
the ism isolationism. This is one of the uh, innovations that that my book makes. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of scholars who have looked at what the so-called isolationists really believed and come to the conclusion that, well, they're not isolationists or, you know, isolationism hardly describes the tradition of American power where the United States expanded with incredible rapidity from 13 colonies across the, uh, North America, you know, taking a uh, great power, uh, sorry, taking uh, colonies emerging by the early 20th century as a fully fledged great power. I mean, it's just crazy on the face of it to call America isolationist at that time. And indeed, hardly anybody, I mean, nobody did. Uh, nobody thought this would be a sensible word to apply. And even in World War I, the advocates of the League of Nations didn't really call their opponents isolationists either. So the key turning point comes in the 1930s. And what we have to pay attention to is not the people who were called isolationists. They were for forms of interaction, just like past internationalists, trade, as much trade as possible, basically, uh, engaging in you know, international law, uh, all kinds of things. Their only point really was that the United States had no business going to war in Europe and the Eurasian landmass, a fully traditional point uh, from the perspective of uh, American history. Uh, so why do they get called isolationists? Well, you know, the, the grain of truth is that, is that they are willing to compromise a little bit with the tradition of neutrality by restricting certain forms of trade, ex you know, the extension of uh, arms, loans to belligerents. But that's really quite limited. That doesn't make for a fully fledged view about America's role in the world. So what their opponents were now uh, thinking was they wanted to find some way to overcome that traditional aversion to uh, non-entanglement in the affairs of Europe. They weren't quite sure how to do this in the 1930s. I mean, popular support wasn't really there. They came up with a modified version of the Neutrality Acts as I mentioned before, where the United States would de facto coordinate with the League of Nations to try to support one side in an armed conflict, you know, while maintaining uh, facial neutrality. But after the fall of France, they really change their calculations. Now, they warn repeatedly that the problem with allowing uh, the Axis powers to dominate Europe and Asia is it would render the United States isolated, isolated in the world and isolated from history. So they turn this prospect of isolationism into the great specter to be avoided as if isolation was tantamount to a security problem. And so from that moment, uh, a whole tradition is just invented of American isolation, where the aversion to military entanglement uh, in Europe and Eurasia is then cast as full-scale isolationism, as if an aversion to using armed force implies an aversion to engaging in the world at all. And that has proved to be a, uh, an enduring feature of American foreign policy discourse 
to this very day. And the reason it's enduring isn't that there are actual isolationists out there who want the United States to do nothing in the world, including nothing militarily. It's that against the specter of isolationism, the people who want American military dominance can come to look like they're internationalists, that somehow they can uh, dominate the world and transcend the world's problems at the same time. So it really changes the way Americans thought about internationalism. That's what it does. Because internationalism used to be understood as a project fundamentally of overcoming power politics, stay out of power politics, or try to overcome it through the processes of commerce, law, mutual understanding, etc. And so from 1940 and 41 onward, internationalism comes to be redefined against isolationism, and thus as requiring American military dominance. So the, 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 that debate between isolationists, uh, so-called, and uh, internationalists, although they're actually premisists, as you point out, um, it, it's often cast as a kind of um, populism, like populist internationalists, you know, coded anti-Semitic, coded, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, almost know nothing, you know, uh, unsophisticated uh, country bumpkins attached to the old way of doing things versus intelligent, forward-thinking internationalists. But of course, that, that isn't exactly true, right? And the American First Committee is formed at Yale. Uh, it has, you know, future presidents John F. Kennedy and Gerald Ford and Sergeant Shriver and a num any number of sort of up-and-coming, fully-blooded members of the kind of East Coast elite are are active in it. So, what what is the actual elite politics of this this debate, and why why does it end up why does the America First side end up losing that battle so definitively? So it's absolutely true that there were respectable powerful elites on both sides of the equation in 1940 and 41 up to the attack on Pearl Harbor that got the United States officially into the war. But I don't think it was a kind of even split to begin with. I think it was, there was enough popular support for both positions that if the president of the United States and the, you know, most elites, people who dominated the, uh, you know, newspapers and uh, organs of opinion, there was enough support popularly that the America First position could have won out under a different political configuration. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the administration was not really tempted by the America First position. Very few people were, um, you know, a couple in the military, though a lot of that had to do with uh, just the fact that the military at the time didn't have the capacity to even defend the entire Western Hemisphere and really needed to be built up in a in a in a hurry. So, the people who got together to do post-war planning in conjunction with the administration in places like the Council on Foreign Relations, although you know at the outset of the war they were not at all uh, thinking in terms of post-war U.S. military dominance. After the fall of France, you know, they, they were not actually having the debate uh, internally of, you know, well, should we have a hemispheric position or not? By the fall, I mean, in, initially they're trying to figure out how bad is uh, the situation going to be in, in Europe. But by the fall of 1940, by the uh, time when it's clear that Britain is hanging on, the Nazis haven't somehow 
unlocked the mystery of offensive warfare. You know, they got lucky uh, and they were clever uh, in, in invading France. They started to think, well, we really don't prefer a world that the America firsters describe in which the United States would be isolated to so-called uh, to the uh, Western hemisphere as well. So, you know, in some sense, it's not that close of a fight insofar as I don't think if you, if you start history as things were in let's say September of 1940, and you run that experiment a thousand times, I don't think in many of those times somehow you end up with uh, the America first position actually prevailing. Now you'd have to kind of change the president. You'd have to change foreign policy establishment such as it existed at the time that had been organized uh, into think tanks since roughly the first world war. Uh, and they were you know, largely supportive of the League of Nations and of so-called collective security uh, coming out of the first world war. So their position had to evolve substantially to make the United States, you know, play the role of the enforcer of international law and order. That was a huge shift, but there had already been a kind of branching off uh, from the point where Woodrow Wilson proposed the League of Nations toward the end of World War One. Yeah, so one of the interesting points that you make in the book uh, is you, you kind of recover the history, the real history of internationalism. Right, which doesn't begin with Wilson, but begins with American involvement in peace conferences and international law in the 19th century. You know, the first president to win a Nobel Peace Prize was not Obama or Wilson, but Teddy Roosevelt, uh, not just for brokering the deal between Japan and Russia, but also for um, his enthusiasm for uh, these kind of international commitments. Um, why have we forgotten this earlier kind of international lawmaking? And, how, and to what extent is that part of a story of of actually rejecting international law I mean, in, in favor of a so-called rules-based order where we make the rules. This is uh, autobiographically how I actually came to this project. I had done research previously on international law in World War One and on how during World War One it, it wasn't just or even mainly Woodrow Wilson's idea for the League of Nations that circulated in American politics, but first. Uh, it was something called the League to Enforce Peace that would uh, commit countries to cooperate, to put force behind international law, specifically to obligate members of this league to um, settle their disputes uh, in an international court, perhaps enforce the decision to force the countries to comply. And this is just so wild to me that even people like Theodore Roosevelt not at all hesitant about using force, were proponents of this idea in World War I. So that clued me in to this uh, whole uh, universe of debates under the rubric of internationalism uh, that existed before we ever thought that internationalism was uh, the opposite of isolationism. So you could very well, you know, tell this story, and I, I do in broad strokes, as, you know, when the United States appoints itself as the enforcer of international law and order, it really turns its back on uh, its prior tradition of internationalism and international law, and then co-ops that tradition by saying it's doing all of this in the name of internationalism. 
in broad strokes, certainly in terms of how the concepts evolved in meaning and usage over time, that's true. But there is a, a, a different, more specific story you can tell about how advocates of uh, international law in the first few decades of the 20th century, they did pave the way for the assumption of military primacy later, uh, insofar as they started to doubt in World War I that peaceful interaction or what was called public opinion could really overcome differences among nations and the resort to war. That's why they wanted to put force, albeit collectively, behind international law, at least many of them did in World War I. And Woodrow Wilson had his different way. It wasn't centered on an international court, but he had a different way of uh, trying to find some scheme that would be uh, stronger than the mere force of public opinion, even though if you parse Wilson closely, he's deeply ambivalent about uh, whether the uh, guarantee of territorial integrity uh, in Article 10, the collective security provision, actually would ever have to be used, and whether it was a really binding commitment on the parties, including on Congress. So he's really ambivalent. Uh, so it's an incoherent, I would say, ultimately incoherent vision that these internationalists had, um, and it didn't look incoherent to them because they were still holding on for quite some time to the idea that, well, eventually history's moving in the right direction. And even though it's clear that states have plenty of reasons to go to war now, and even though the United States should you know, reserve from the purview of a court things that it considers to be in its vital interest, you know, in time, this is all gonna be worked out. And it's no longer possible to believe that in the 1930s. And so this you know, change in what we might call a, a philosophy of history uh, or anxieties about the direction of history, uh, when it encounters this pre-existing interest in enforcing international law and order, marry that up with the geopolitical dynamics of 1940 and 41, and that's pretty much how you get primacy. Yeah. So, you know, the, Walter Lippmann, who you spend a decent amount of time on in the book, is famous for his advocacy for primacy. He's also famous as the kind of the major theorist of public opinion. How, how did public opinion go from being this sort of organic, you know, democratic force to something that could needed to be manufactured and manipulated to achieve these sort of geopolitically necessary ends? I think the, you know, chronology, th this transformation that you describes, uh, takes place from the early 19th century to about 1945. So public opinion, first of all, it's a really interesting category uh, that we've lost touch with because we just don't think it matters, but it was very central to uh, internationalist thought in the United States and uh, transatlantically as well. Uh, the, the quintessential claim of, of internationalists in the 19th century uh, was that Something called public opinion uh, was uh, what needed to be expressed, maybe uplifted, educated a bit. And that was going to overcome uh, the obstacles to peace, the, the clashes uh, between states, uh, you know, initially between autocrats and princes, monarchs, and then later between, you know, nation states. 
So this is the fundamental category for them. It's not international organization. International organization isn't really on the table until World War One. So if you want to understand what internationalism meant on its own terms, public opinion is really the central commitment. There is a, a very rich set of debates about public opinion from about World War I onward. And Walter Lippmann is one of the key exponents of this. And you know, initially, not many people are going to reject public opinion as a serious force. But they are becoming skeptical that, you know, actually deep down, publics really agree on what should be done. I mean, that was the claim that Woodrow Wilson mm. truly believed. And Walter Lippmann's one of the first person, people to reject that claim and to see that publics actually could be quite belligerent, sometimes more than the elites themselves. So this kind of elitist notion of public opinion uh, starts to circulate even among uh, self-described internationalists, where, yeah, they're still on the surface committed to public opinion and still think that, you know, one day public opinion is going to conquer all and, um, and lead to the abolition of war. But public opinion needs to be uplifted. It needs to be managed. It needs to be led by enlightened elites who, after all, are more cosmopolitan than, you know, the provincials. So there's a set of debates that take place about that. And then in the 1930s, the rise of totalitarian powers really discredits the notion that public opinion is an effective force because there you have popular uh, totalitarian governments. So it raises fundamental doubts about whether uh, there is some kind of harmonious public opinion out there. And at the same time, there are new, uh, there's new technology. Public opinion polls come into usage in the 1930s. So now you can actually take the temperature of what the true public thinks. So all these different meanings of public opinion are jostling around uh, in the 1930s and, and 40s. And it's not always easy to disentangle them when you encounter a historical source and people are saying, well, the you know, public opinion uh, may want to resort to isolationism after World War II. This was a huge fear uh, for post-war planners in the United States. Um, you have to try and figure out, are they referring to measurable public preferences? Actually, they weren't. Are they projecting their own anxieties onto the public because they're fearing that what they are planning is looks a lot like the British Empire, at least from their own perspective, just years or months before? That might be part of the story. And then I think they really did imbibe their own ideology. They weren't you know, consciously trying to come up with this idea of isolationism uh, just as a tool to deceive people. They believed that this was the way things were and that if the United States didn't project military power more, eventually, somehow, it was going to end up truly confined in the world in its interactions. So the logical implication of the non-interventionist position was some sort of isolation. So all these things are kind of at play. And so the book tries to, tries to understand uh, what, they, what they mean by this category. But one thing is for sure, by 1945, there's no more uh, lip service paid. Well, a little bit. But there's not much lip service paid uh, by FDR or future presidents to the idea that you know, armed force is going to be in the background of international affairs now. And it's really public opinion that's going to steer the world to some new common consciousness 
and provide basic order in the world. That was the claim that Woodrow Wilson made explicitly uh, in 1919 and 1920. And that claim had been thoroughly discredited during World War II. It's precisely because public opinion, however conceived, even if it's elitist guys, or if it's literally conceived as the actual preferences of the public, public opinion could not be relied upon uh, to ensure a decent world order. So uh, this might be a good chance to pivot to the work that you're doing with the Quincy Institute. If we need to separate the ideas that America can be involved in, in useful ways in the world from the idea that America needs to be the leader of the world and the rule maker and policeman for the world, how, how do we really, how do we set about doing that when it's so um, ingrained, uh, not only in our institutions, but also in public opinion? Your average American, at least in my experience, whether they, you know, though they might not have thought through the full implications of this, they really do want America to be in charge. They really don't want to live in a world or aren't, uh, don't think they want to live in a world in which America doesn't have an important, uh, doesn't get to have a say. So how do we, how do we, how do we rebuild neutrality? Well, it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, and that work is not going to happen overnight or over the course of one administration or something like that. It involves operating on a lot of levels, right? One level is the level we've been discussing, that our own imagination of America's role in the world has been really limited, I would say warped, by the very vocabulary developed to justify American military dominance. And we can open our minds to other possibilities. So there's one level of changing our self-understanding. And, you know, I think there, we're pushing on an open door. There is a real reckoning happening in this country with America's role in the world. It's not usually at the very center of our political discussion, but it's happening. How can it be that Donald Trump, you know, passed muster with enough voters to become president in 2016? I mean, most foreign policy hands thought, you know, they were going to write open letters calling him an isolationist and game over. They were wrong. And this is somebody who put forward a really different conception of America's place in the world, where America wasn't proud and leading the world, but it was retrograde, being exploited by other people. He actually said he rejected American exceptionalism. And, and now he's become the first president not to warn the American public against the specter of isolationism since Herbert Hoover. He's broken in eight decade long tradition. So something's happening, at least on the level of, you know, high political discourse, that is quite different from what we've seen before, even if policy has not yet changed in a substantial way, including under President Trump. Absolutely. That's one level of work. Then you have the realities that the unipolar moment is over and everybody knows it, at least American foreign policy makers, they know that. So the United States is going to have to make choices in its foreign policy, confront trade-offs, accept limits to its power that a whole generation of people aren't used to. But I actually think the, the public gets it. So I think this is not so much a sort of grassroots problem so much as it is a problem among the people who make foreign policy and shape the terms of the debate. Do you think part of this is, is going to involve just making ordinary Americans feel the costs of this? Uh, to some extent, or getting them involved, uh, making them see how it affects their lives. Because, you know, Sarah Kreps has a book uh, about war taxing wars, which is about the fact that historically America would institute specific war taxes 
Uh, and you know that's a kind of direct cost on the American people. We don't have a draft. Uh, we don't have, unless you know somebody in the, in the armed services, you, you, average Americans, you would never know there are wars going on. Is there some way we can kind of, I guess, revive the Republican tradition uh, and revive participation in American foreign policy and that that will lead to uh, more realism and restraint? Well, I think we are emerging from a historically anomalous period in which the political contestation over American foreign policy has been incredibly low. Even though somehow 9-11 happened, the United States was actually attacked at home. Despite all that, the level of popular mobilization has been low. But I do think that has been changing in the past decade or so. And I think we should expect that it will continue uh, to change. But you are right. Um, the public was much more engaged in you know, foreign policy matters in previous decades when the costs of war were much more widely borne. Uh, we've perfected as a country uh, the art of separating the people who fight our wars and the cost of those wars from most of society. I do think though, you know, if you're looking at a, let's say a 20 year time horizon, the ability of the United States to rack up uh, deficits and debt is not going to last forever. In addition to that, one reason our wars have been endless in the greater Middle East uh, is how low cost to most Americans they seem. Now, you can trot out the billions spent and lives lost, and that ought to matter, but you know, it's only going to matter so far in our politics, I'm afraid. But now we've gotten to the point where the United States has uh, expanded its security commitments and its military footprint so much. And now countries like Russia and China in particular have also increased their assertiveness in the case of Russia and their power in the case of China. That as we face the most salient foreign policy questions, the costs of those things are going to be obviously much more serious than well, what will hypothetically happen if a much, much stronger country, the United States, you know, topples Saddam Hussein's regime? You know, we have to face the question of whether the United States uh, is going to back Ukraine and try to expand the NATO alliance into Ukraine and then probably face a war with Russia. Well, that sounds like it might just be costly if I'm an ordinary American. Why would we do that? And we're also probably going to lose that war if that's what happens. So that's an issue. And then there's so much more contestation now over the question of Taiwan. But that again confronts Americans with the question of, oh, okay, I thought alliances were really fine uh, when it sounded like they were about cooperation and deterrence. I mean, who's against deterrence if it always definitely works? Not me, but that's not how it works. So now, uh, you know, if we really get into a confrontation with another significant power in which we're talking about going to war uh, over parts of the world that are just quite peripheral from what matters to most of the American people. I think you know that could change significantly how people understand not just that particular issue, but America's larger role in the world, because suddenly all these alliance commitments 
look dangerous and they look costly. So one, one last question for you, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. One way of telling the story that you, you want to that you tell in the book is about changing notions of the public and the changing technologies of the public. So you, you can draw almost a straight line from the rise of mass media, beginning with, with ma major national newspapers and then radio and then television to this concern or even paranoia about the manipulatability of the public, of public opinion, and the rise of what Noam Chomsky called manufactured consent. Well, that media world is is shattered with the rise of the internet, the rise of social media, new ways of connecting. What does that mean for the future of American foreign policy that uh, we now have a media environment that, frankly, causes a lot of anxiety in our elite? You know, if you open the New York Times, you can see a tremendous amount of anxiety about the fact that these forms of uh, communication are out of control. So what impact is that going to have on American foreign policy going forward? I don't know the answer to that. In a way, you're asking two different questions. First, what are the implications for American foreign policy of the material changes in media and the way ordinary Americans consume news, opinion, and engage in political discussion? Then there's a separate question, which is the... American ruling class, if you like, has gone through now a real freakout about the manipulability of the public, about integrity of the U.S. election process, given meddling, and they're very concerned about the rise of social media. I, I don't know. I instinctively, I instinctively am skeptical of the media technological determinist position that oh, because I mean, you can go back every every decade. Uh, to the rise of, uh, I don't even know, I mean, probably the 18th century and find people making very similar arguments about how, well, this changes everything. And I just don't know that we can say we can project much forward from what we've seen in the last few decades. Well, thank you both for joining us today. This has been an enlightening conversation. We've been speaking with Stephen Wertheim, author of Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy, out now from Harvard University Press and available at many booksellers, and with Jonathan Askinus, Assistant Professor of Politics at the Catholic University of America. This has been an episode of Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. Thanks for listening. Until next time, 